0: Welcome to
1: Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP, Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, wpvmfm.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Hey, thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you'd like to hear more of Walter's music. If you'd like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And I would also like to thank Davine Dial, who manages WPVM FM. That's WPVMFM.org if you'd like to know more about that. And if you write and you would like to join me on Saturday morning at noon Eastern time, 10 p.m. Mountain Time, I host a writing workshop with my good friend and collaborator, Allegra Houston. It's called The Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. So if you would like to storm your imagination and let your imagination lead the dance with your rational mind and write something fanciful and read it to a group of people who gather every Saturday morning, the door is always open. imaginativestorm.com. that's imaginativestorm.com. If you've been listening to this show, you know I always invite people on the show that I I have some interest in. I'm drawn to for some reason. Some are friends I've known for years and others I'm just getting to know. And today I have Hannah Williams on. And Hannah's someone I met on Zoom, and the reason I met Hannah was because she was a candidate for the upcoming TEDx Asheville talks that are going to happen in February 2022. And she was not only a candidate, she was chosen. She was chosen for many reasons. Today, we're going to explore some of those reasons that Hannah has joined us. One thing we know, and I know, and you'll find out, Hannah's in her 20s. And Hannah does work from a bridging point of view, helping people understand the relational aspects of the different generations. How do we as humans discuss life with each other across generational bridges and and all kinds of businessy things? I'm going to let Hannah tell us more about that. Hannah, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio.
0: Thanks, James. I'm excited to be here.
1: Well, I'm excited for you to be here too. You work in the business world, and I'm going to start this conversation by telling you that for years, I fancied myself as someone who knew a bit about business. And the more I did work in businessy type situations and the more little businesses I had, the more I realized that I didn't know much about it. I can put a product together and I can hand it to you and you can give me some money in exchange and off I go. But I started to understand I just don't know that much about it. It's not a mystery. But it's a lot more complicated than somebody might think. So I'm going to just open this up and ask you to define business for us, especially people who maybe don't know that world as well as you do. So tell us all about that, if you would.
0: What an interesting question. The way I define business, James, is an exchange of value. The same way you would define a currency, and I'm coming at this from my perspective as a 23-year-old who's grown up in a world where business is very different from what my parents or my grandparents described to me. I see very little difference between the physical world where you know, goods and services are exchanged Physically, say, you know, in a Walmart off off of shelves and where products are there in person and a world of digital products and services. And so the world of business is changing, but I view business as again, that exchange of value where two people or compound that by hundreds or thousands or millions of people come together and they are adding value to one another through products and services and, and finding ways to meet each other's needs.
1: Well, the reason I ask that is I have a friend named Paul Devlin who was recently on this show and we're talking about business and he was telling me that he had learned by way of a man he was working with who was a a CEO for Hire. Paul told me that you have CEOs who are really good at working with companies that have 5 million dollars worth of gross income and then you have the 10 million and then you go to 20, 30, 40 up to a billion dollars. And at each level, the CEO's skill set changes. So the CEO that could manage a $10 million company wouldn't be able to necessarily handle a $30 million or $50 million company. And that's when I started to think, I don't know anything about business. So that's why I opened with that question, because I was just curious because you do work in business, you consult with businesses and you've been doing business in one way or another all your life because your family is a business family, real estate family. Your family okay. buys and sells and you do too. So that's why I was curious about business.
0: No, he's absolutely right. I work with companies all over the spectrum. Mostly I'm working with mid-sized businesses, so usually the companies who come to me and say, you know, I'm having a retention problem. My staff keeps leaving, you know, how how do I solve that? Or I'm having a leadership challenge. How do I grow my leaders? That's exactly the challenge they're describing. It's not just the CEO who as a company grows from 5 million to 50 million to 300 million. It's not just the CEO whose skill set has to change and develop. It's also the leadership underneath it. And especially when you look down at the mid-level management, that's where a lot of the pieces end up falling off the radar. I work with a lot of mid-level management teams who are struggling to make that transition. Whether they're acquiring a new business, say they're, you know, 5 million in revenue and they acquire another company that's also 5 million in revenue. Well, now they've just doubled their their gross and there's new staff along with that and cultural integration and leadership development. It, it is a fascinating topic because, you know, every industry is different, the scale is all different. And I primarily work on the talent side with Gen Zers like myself. I'm helping CEOs and and business owners understand who do I need to hire and recruit from the next generation? These students get the best and brightest talent into my company before they're snapped up by other companies. How do I attract and recruit them? And then how do I get them to stay? And that's really where my passion is and, and what I work on with my clients.
1: I'm thinking about the startup companies that, like Facebook, it started small, little dorm room, one thing led to another, and now look at it, still led by the same CEO. The skill level required to run a big operation like Facebook certainly is much different than the skill level required to launch something in one's dorm room. Do you think these companies that are large and grow very fast, do they lose their way and get confused because the original startup owner, the CEO, is still at the helm?
0: I honestly think, James, that's the reason that so many businesses fail. We see in Asheville, in fact, there's another TEDx speaker who is the president of Venture Asheville, which I'm sure you know is the startup community support company, and they they help startups grow. And he was just sharing recently, I didn't realize this about Asheville, but only about 5% of the businesses that start in Asheville ever make it to their first round of funding a year, two years down the road. So that's a startling number, you know, only 5% of businesses and and nationally or globally, that number is even smaller. So in my opinion, and working with leaders throughout the years, it is very clear that the leadership, the CEO, and especially those top people he puts he or she puts around them is incredibly vital to the success of the company long term. So if they can't transition from mom and pop shop or they started in their basement or they started as a solopreneur and then now they find themselves with millions of dollars of revenue or thousands of sales, it's very difficult to keep that momentum if they don't put the right people in their path and skill set.
1: So you are working with businesses all over the country, maybe the globe, trying to help them understand how to work with the newcomers to the scene, the younger people your your age. How do women in leadership fit into this new scenario? Are you finding there's more of a pathway for women to women to climb the ladder to the higher rungs? Or is it still as difficult as it once was? What's the scoop on women in business?
0: I'm glad we're having this conversation, James, because what we're seeing here and what I'll, I'll describe is a paradigm where you have me, I'm 23, I'm an Asheville native, but I've lived elsewhere and I get to travel all the time. So I'm 23, I'm a part of Generation Z, I'm a native digital, and then you're coming from a perspective of, I'm not going to ask you how old you are, but you're coming from a different generation. And so when we think about topics like women in leadership, for example, my perspective as a general Zer and, and my generation would share this is we can't fathom a world in which every single person does not have the same opportunity. In our head, it's very clear to us that there's incredible value from having a diverse perspective on any leadership team or board of directors. And that includes women and men, it includes people of color, it includes people from other countries who don't come from the same native language, it includes people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. So when Gen Z thinks about diversity, We're not just thinking about women in leadership, for example, we're thinking about how can we support companies, especially, you know, my heart for for America, my own country, where there is so much diversity of perspective on a leadership decision-making team. You don't have the blind spots that typically occur when you've got a a pretty homogenous group. So to answer your question about women in leadership, I have seen during my lifetime, in many industries, a shift where women do have an incredible voice and they're able to come to the table and make decisions. And there are many women-led companies who are also very successful. I mean, we just saw that the CEO of Spanx recently sold her company for over a billion dollars. I mean, that's incredible. But then of course you have the the, um, shift that I think, and this this for me is a, a whole different perspective, I think in some industries, there are still many lagging pieces. Uh, For example, I have a wonderful friend who left the world of legal because she grew up in Saudi Arabia. She is Muslim. And then she lives in the US, is married to an American, but she entered law and was quickly moved up into managing partner at the firm she was working at. But what she quickly found is the leadership team only moved her to that position to check off. A diversity card to say we have a woman of color in leadership and yet every board meeting that she walked into she was silenced she was sitting at the table and and no one paid attention to anything she had to say and so she quickly left and and here was a woman who had more law degrees because you know she had her american certifications and her Saudi Arabian certifications on top of other doctorates. She's one of the most well-educated women I know. And yet she was pushed off or disregarded and had to leave the world of legal because of that. So there are some industries that are certainly further behind. And they're the ones, in my opinion, who are quickly becoming irrelevant to the marketplace, especially of Gen Z consumers.
1: Do you think these old school corporations, these old school businesses, are creating momentum for women like your friend. She gets in the situation, she's pressurized, she's marginalized, pushed aside, and also she's activated to say, forget this, I will do what I please. And she goes out and establishes a whole new proposition based on her experience. And is that part of what will render these old ways of thinking irrelevant when these younger people just go out and say, I'm just going to build this castle on my own in the sky. Forget you characters over here in the corner.
0: Absolutely. 100%. You know, it's interesting you say this, James, because in all my research, I wrote a book that was published just a couple of months ago. And in the process of writing A Leader's Guide to Unlocking Gen Z, I came across a a wide variety of very interesting people who were sharing with me their stories. Many of them were millennials between ages 25 and 40, were sharing with me their stories of how they retaliated against what they felt or heard or saw in their first or second job in corporate America. And that was the impetus for them creating their startup or the impetus for why they chose to do business or create the culture the way they did. What I see, and and this is kind of interesting when you talk about the generational elements, I don't consider myself a a generational expert. I I consider myself an expert of Gen Z and I get to be the Gen Z CEO advisor. But when I look at the millennial generation and my experience with them, I see an incredibly interesting perspective because what happened, we all know, you know, boomers were the parents of most millennials And Gen X was the parent of most Gen Zers. So, boomers and and millennials are typically the ones we see fighting and clashing, right? On everything. It's, you know, boomers wondering why are millennials so entitled? Why are, you know, millennials such and such? Why do they want to be VP or get a promotion within three months of their hire date? All of these stereotypes that we hear about millennials. And yet, the boomer generation were number one, the parents of the millennials. They're the ones who chose to raise kids like this. And secondly, they're typically the ones millennials, when they talk about retaliating against policies created by corporate America or the global workspace, it's typically the policies that boomers would have been familiar with, that millennials are retaliating against. Things like inflexibility in work schedules vacation policies pto etc there's so many examples of that that type of banter that's happening between those two so long story longer (laughs) to answer your question millennials have started startups, I think, exactly because of that. They're, they're saying we're fed up with the status quo and we're going to change. And now you see Gen Z in some aspects carrying that forward. And in other aspects, we've said, actually, we kind of liked the way the boomers were doing it. And we can get into that if you want to.
1: You asked me earlier, you speculated something about my age. I'm 72. So I am a boomer clearly. I was born in 1949. My first experience with the digital space was in 1987, when I plugged in and started using computers for a business I was running, a poetry business called Poetry Alive. And we memorized poems from the school textbook and performed the Miss Theater all over the country. I don't claim to have massive fluency in it because it's like trying to chase a dozen antelope across a wild prairie, they move so fast you'll never be able to catch them, but you can wallow in the beauty of it all. So I am coming from the boomer point of view. And I think that sometimes the boomers carry so much of what their parents gave them, which was the depression and World War II and all of that disruption. And the boomers in response to the disruption somewhat closed ranks. they had a little bit of a revolution called the counterculture 60s. But I don't think the 60s, quote unquote, were more about conformity than about anything else. because when you look at the boomers and you look at how we we reminisce, I don't reminisce so much about that, but a lot of my friends reminisce about, oh, how free we were. But there was a lot of confinement back then. Now coming forward to you, You are working in a different arena that has many more, perhaps, outlets, or does it? Are you as confined as the boomers, but in a different way, or are you more liberated?
0: This is so interesting because I think when you look at the world of of online, for example, and look at what social media Has enabled my generation to do, the best way to describe it is with a story. And I'll I'll get to that in a second, or with an example. But to answer your question directly before I illustrate this, I think in some aspects, my generation does feel incredibly liberated in terms of what we're able to accomplish starting at a very young age based on the tools and the the access or the barriers to entry that have dropped by so much to being able to do things like start a business or get educated differently. Our generation, statistically speaking, is on track to become the most uh, college educated generation in history. Now that could be a whole other conversation about the quality of that education. But if you think about just the list of things that my generation has access to and that we have this new frontier of the online space that we are natives of, we do have a a feeling of liberation. Now I'll also say on the flip side of that, that the millennial generation got the headwind of that. So if you were born in you know, 1985 and you were in your teens, when the first social media came out, you had the ability to start creating content or to start exploring it earlier than even a native digital, which would be my generation. And so I've been born into a world where there was already so much momentum in the online space you know, I was born in 98, so I, I don't really remember a time without a cell phone, without computers. I, I don't remember 9-11. When you are born into that type of world, you begin to quickly realize how saturated the marketplaces are. If you are trying to build an online brand, there is so much content out there already. It feels hard to break through the noise until there's a new platform invented, for example, like TikTok and what we saw with the new creators there. And so in a sense, we feel more liberated in terms of politically speaking, economically speaking, especially economically with the ability to start a business uh, from your bedroom. There's incredible liberation in terms of art and freedom of expression and music and and look at Billie Eilish and how she created the most incredible album that has, in my opinion, from my generation has ever existed and won however many Grammys she won from that, from her bedroom with with a brother as a producer. So it just goes to show that the, the liberation and the tools and the access that we experience, I don't know what it was like to live in the 60s, but it certainly seems like we are incredibly liberated in so many regards and yet incredibly limited if we don't have the right perspective on how to use those tools.
1: Limitation, what do you mean by limited?
0: Coming back to the example of the content and the saturation. Let's say, for example, you are an artist. You want to open an Etsy boutique. Let's say you make Christmas ornaments and you want to get out there, put your ornaments out there and build a business that you can live off of as an ornament maker. If you go on Etsy right now, you're gonna have incredible difficulty with just on Etsy alone, gaining visibility or an audience because the marketplace is so saturated. Now, of course, there are other strategies such as building your Instagram or other platforms that can direct your consumers to your Etsy page to buy. But that was not the case when Etsy first started, when they first formed their company and had adopters start selling products on the platform, you could literally have an Etsy store. And there would be enough marketing and enough search power through just Etsy to sell your products without any external marketing. And now the barriers to entry are much higher whether it's selling Christmas ornaments on Etsy or trying to have a viral video on Instagram, you're going to have more barriers. So that's where I would say the limitation comes in in terms of what is possible. It's very easy for Gen Z to develop anxiety, even depression, because it's so difficult to break through the noise.
1: That's interesting because I've been working with my collaborator, Allegra Houston, and we have this project called the Imaginative Storm writing project, right? And I've, like I said, been online in one way or another since 1987. So even though I'm not a digital native, I have always had that sensibility in my awareness for many, many, many years. And one of the things Allegra and I were attempting to do with our project, which is to help people learn how to write and engage in the writing process without having the uppercase W in front of writer or getting rid of the quotes. Just, I'm writing. I'm just generating some content here. No problem. We thought we'll do all the social media stuff, and and it worked up to a point. But what we decided to do was to run a Saturday morning session every Saturday at noon Eastern time and just let people know about it. And over the last eight months, even though we don't have a massive base, the base we have, which is about 60 people who drop in and out of this, they invite people along the way. It's a very loyal base of people who now are starting to buy things from us. So it's that idea of developing a true fan. And then the social media starts to work out from that base rather than the other way around, which is an interesting way of, of building something. It takes a bit of patience to do that.
0: It does. Well, and, and what you're talking about there is something powerful that every generation who has access to social media has, has the power in their hands to do right is to create a community and to become the leader of that category niche. If you know what your differentiator is and, and the community that you build resonates with that strongly, you're going to be the choice. If someone's saying, you know, I I don't know how to be a writer. I don't, you know, I get writer's block or whatever they're struggling with. If they know that they can come to, to your community and that you've designed it in such a way that is different from anything else that's out there, or maybe it's easier to access resources or it's easier to chat with people who are of like mind more so than a Facebook group, for example, then you've created that differentiator. And that's what my generation is doing in every type of business, whether it's food blogging or it's sharing legal best practices. There's, I don't know how often, or if you get on TikTok, but there's a, a couple who graduated Harvard, both work at a law firm and they break down various videos that, you know, people send them of, was this legal? Was it legal for a police officer to stop? This guy for whatever he stopped him for. And they'll they'll actually break down the legality and share that on TikTok and it gets millions of views.
1: I just heard about a woman who was doing that. That might be the same woman. She's a partner in a law firm and she does all of this review. She reviews on TikTok all the time and has millions of followers who are all interested in, in the law. So I bet it's the same, I bet it's the same person.
0: Well, and here's what's interesting too, is that. If you think about being a native digital, this is something. This is so important. If if you take you know one thing away from any conversation with a native digital or with me, that this is what it should be, is that native digitals are not just a new generation of people that you know we have to try to understand their buying habits or try to understand what music that generation likes. We're not a generation that you can just point at and say, oh, here comes more young people. Let's make fun of them or let's talk about what makes them great. Generation Z or native digitals are a new category of human that for the first time in history, we actually have have birthed a new generation that is the first, the very first one that is fully integrated with machines. And if it, and the way I have to depict it is as a native digital. There's you know me, people under age thirty ish, and then you have the native analog generation. And the only distinction is that native digitals are a digital first. Generation and native analogs were an analog first generation. The natural world around us, me speaking as native digital, is actually my secondary life experience. My primary life experience is a digital or a virtual one. And we're the first generation that has happened for. So, what I talk about frequently is if you don't get that, you know, if you're a native analog, let's illustrate this. Let's take a country, say North Korea. If you are born in North Korea and you live there for your whole life, you know the culture, you know the politics, you know what it's like being a native of North Korea, right? If someone from America moved to North Korea, say they even if they were in their teens or, or their 20s, they're never going to understand what it is like to be a native of North Korea because they have not had the same lived experience. You know, you can try to adapt to the culture, you can learn the language, you can learn about the people around you, but truly being a native takes being born into that language, that culture, understanding what they value, why they do things a specific way. And anyone who moves that drastically from a country like America to one like North Korea understands that you can be a cultural immigrant. You can immigrate somewhere and, and, and learn what it means to be an immigrant and adapt to a culture, but it's not the same as being a native. So compare that now to what it's like being a native digital if you're not born into this, if you know what life is like without a cell phone, if you know what life is like without access to the internet, your perspective is different from someone who literally cannot fathom a world where Google doesn't exist. I remember from even a very early age playing computer games, watching YouTube videos from the time I was four, five, six years old. It is a very different mindset and the implications for businesses, the leaders I work with and and the CEOs who are coming from a native analog perspective, they're they're getting native digitals on their side to help them strategize. Because if you don't have that perspective of a native digital, it's hard to build products and services for a native digital world.
1: So take somebody like me, for example, I have been engaged in the analog world since I was born. I'm a, a native analogian from that <laughs> planet. And, I like that. I'll
0: have to steal that. <laughs>
1: well, you're welcome to it. That's the poetic part of the show. and And I grew up without any of the digital machinery. You mentioned that we, that you are, you were, you mentioned being surrounded by machinery. Well, we've been surrounded by machinery since the industrial revolution in one way or another. So with somebody like, like me, Just as an example, I have gone from the rotary phone all the way through all the buttons and this and that, dropping the dimes and the quarters into the pay phones, et cetera, et cetera, hopefully being able to communicate psychically but failing miserably along the way, which is another conversation. And as soon as I was able to use the machinery that became available… I got my hands on it. So whatever is there in front of me has always been the machinery that I brought into my world. So how am I affected by that evolution? I'm coming from the analog world, but I'm sitting here with a brand new iPhone 13. How is that influencing me?
0: I'm so glad you asked. Let's, Let's talk about an example. Let me ask you this when you need to pay a bill or you you think about your finances for example what would be your process for paying a bill receiving a bill paying off business expenses whatever it is what what does that process look like for you
1: i don't have it set up automatically i go online and pay the bill i don't have i don't have anything that comes in the mail i do everything in front of the computer screen
0: so you might receive a bill saved through email and it comes up and you you go onto the portal or online portal, you pay the bill, or maybe you pay it through your bank account or some sort of e-check service, something like that.
1: Yeah, I have two credit cards. All my bills go onto those credit cards and i pay two bills a month. Plus I send a PayPal friend to friend for my rent and that covers everything. Okay. And then I do have some automated stuff that just gets charged to the credit card. Sure. And then I pay the credit card off and then I have the credit card set up. So I pay it once a month automatically. And then I pay the balance off at the end, before the end of the month. Nice. And I, I do that by paying attention to the account, just so I can see where the movement is. And I also want to see if there's anything popping around in there that looks suspicious. Usually there's not, but maybe.
0: Right. Right. Sure. Okay. So that's perfect example. So what you just described would be, or what a digital immigrant would do, right? You you probably used to receive bills in the mail, right? I don't know what would have been before mail. (laughs) I don't What, well, what were, came before were, mail?
1: Owls, owls, lots owls. Of owls, owls. <laughs> <laughs> how could you miss, how could you miss such a thing? <laughs> There's one now.
0: <laughs> Maybe they came through, I don't know, mail and fax, right? Something like that. And then you probably had, you know, the physical bills on your desk and then you would pay them through a check or, or whatnot. Right. And, quite, quite and right, now yeah. you, you may receive them through email. You could pay them through PayPal or pay them online in a portal. Right. So as a digital or as a digital immigrant, so as someone coming from a a place where you had different forms of bill pay, right? You had the mail come in, now it's email and you're paying online. Here's how a native digital would pay their bills. Native digitals as a whole don't know how much is in their bank account. They instead, we have apps that, that ping us through automated intelligence, through artificial intelligence that tell us, hey, hey, Hannah, you've spent too much this month on food. Make sure you don't go out to eat with a friend tonight. There is automated intelligence that tells us now from our bank accounts and from the apps that we have set up digitally to ping us and tell us, hey, you need to pay this. Hey, you probably should not be eating out tonight or you need to cancel this subscription to be able to make your power bill payment this month. So the difference is, it is a different way of accomplishing the same goal as a digital immigrant would take the traditional forms of paying a bill and immigrate it onto an online platform a native digital who has no recollection of how say physical bills in the mail ever came or what came before that other than watching the office maybe <laughs> had to know that there was such a thing as a fax machine we actually Come at anything from investing to education to how we pay our bills from a perspective that artificial intelligence is going to tell us what to do. Obviously, you know, me as someone who's bridging this gap, I think there's a whole lot of problems that can come from that. And I think there's a whole lot of incredible efficiencies that can come from that perspective. So you could take literally any other example education. During COVID last year, you had um, schools everywhere across the world switching to Zoom, right? You had a, a something that was happening in person begin to happen over Zoom. The only thing that changes, of course, is the screen between our face, right? Then you have a native digital perspective and companies that are creating products and services for native digitals. Think of Khan Academy. Khan Academy has been around for years and through COVID, they exploded. Why? Because they're not approaching education as something that can be done in person or migrated onto Zoom. It's not you say, James, you're the teacher. You're not just sitting there teaching me from where I sit, how to do my school or or whatever it is, math, science, Khan Academy has transformed the learning game to where there's learning on a student's own time through videos and education courses, There's artificial intelligence that modifies and adapts to the students learning their personalized needs. So the transition here is that the now and the future of every single industry is shifting perspective. We're no longer just taking analog ways of doing things and making them digital. We're actually creating from the start a digital way of doing things. And that is what native digitals are accustomed to.
1: I have to ask this question. What will happen when the systems fail, and likely they will? And I bring that up because a few years ago here in Taos, New Mexico, everybody woke up and there was no, no internet available, and there were no cell phones, none. It was all down. The only thing that worked were landlines, and that went on for four days. Why? A beaver chewed through the main line. And it took three days to figure out where the beaver chewed (laughs) through the line. How analog can you get? A bunch of beavers chewing through some digital lines, right? Right. What kind of contingency plans psychologically do digital natives have when the system breaks down or if it breaks down? So you just don't have that. You don't have any of that anymore. What do you do then?
0: Such a good question because native digitals don't know. And you see, we are completely reliant on the internet. I mean, at the same time though, I I wanna broaden this perspective because it's a good conversation we need to have. Think about before the postal service existed, my family's company that I'm helping them immigrate onto a digital platform a lot of bills still came in the mail. We had a time with the staffing shortages this year where we were missing probably two bills a week. You know, they would get lost somewhere in the mail, you know, the post office wouldn't have the staff to deliver them. It was incredibly disruptive to the business because we hadn't converted those particular bills to an online platform. And so, I guess my question back to anyone from another generation is haven't there always been systems that we rely on that are integral to how we function both personally and in our businesses, that if they fail, there isn't really a contingency plan. If a letter gets lost, you can't go solve that problem yourself by going and physically looking for the letter. You have to rely on the post office and their organizational system, their staffing, their ability to locate that it doesn't matter if it's done digitally or if it's, you know, you physically go knock on the post office door and demand that they find your package or, what, or whatever it is. There's always systems that as we've grown as a civilization that we've begun to rely on. And you're right. We need to be thinking about what happens if the internet goes down for a few days or whatnot. But as a whole society, I would say that thinking about those are important, those contingencies, but it to dwell on them are the reason so many companies have failed to move forward, and, and as a result, they've died.
1: I agree with you. I don't think about any of this ever falling down. I'm completely wired up, and not, but I have often thought, well, if I wasn't able to access any of this, what would I do? I'd probably light a candle and read or something. The question is more for me, the inevitability of change creates success and failure, and when systems fail, People generally just switch and do something else. I would like to think that the digital natives and the analog natives have that in common. The system fails. They say, okay, that's failed. Now I'll go over and do this. Absolutely. And I think that may be a human thing that has been with us for centuries. That's why we've landed where we landed. I do have a a, a question in terms of the digital native you're describing the digital native and you're clearly you're clearly one of the leaders of the digital native generation. And you have lots and lots of momentum. And I imagine that's going to continue for you because you're just, that's just how it is. That's just the way you are, right? There are a lot of people out there in the world, 8 billion of us, many of whom are in your generation. Many, many, many have no access to any of these services that you are talking about. They might have a cell phone, maybe, maybe not. Are they still digital natives?
0: You bring up a great point. Most of the work that I do is here in America or in developed countries. And that's where the shift is happening dramatically. Of course, in other countries, you don't have the same access to the tech that we have here. Of course, there are many startups, even though they're trying to bring basic necessities to other countries or do things differently the development happens on a different path and i would say in in other countries i work with wonderful virtual assistants from the philippines we have you know several who are who i manage and who are amazing people and they're in this interesting dichotomy where much of the country is still struggling to get up to an economic balance and have economic stability and yet there are some some startups for example the the va service that we use is rocket station they are based in houston but they employ people and pay them incredible wages you know compared to the cost of living in the philippines so you have infrastructure in the philippines that allows these native digitals for example i have people on my team who are certainly natively digital they have the infrastructure, the internet, to be able to have access to a, a cell phone or multiple cell phones and a laptop because they need that for their work. And yet down the road, there's starvation occurring. There's folks who don't have the same access to technology. So there's a whole lot more disparity for sure in, in those developing nations. And then of course you have below the developing nations, the countries still struggling with the basic necessities. So this is absolutely geographically centralized to America and Canada, and the UK, and you know the countries who have developed to the point where they have a generation of native digitals. And there are many, many hundreds of other countries who are either caught in that in-between where they might have cell phones and and access to the type the same types of apps that I would be using as a native digital, and yet are struggling to keep a roof over their head. It's a very interesting conversation, and I would say I am certainly not an expert on how that transformation is occurring. I, I would like to be a part of, of changing that.
1: Well, it strikes me this idea of the digital native and then the digital immigrant from the analog world. It's a borderless concept, so when you go to the Philippines and you go to Metro Manila, it's 20 million people, and you drive down this eight-lane road called Edsa, and you get to Edsa by going through some of the slum areas, and then you're going down the eight-lane road, you cross the bridge, and you turn the exit and you through a few slum areas, and then a quarter of a mile away, you bump into the Bentley dealership, which is sitting right there in Makati City, which is the vital District where all of the people do their business work internationally. In Manila or in the Philippines, you have that contrast between people earning $7 a day in the city, maybe five a day out in the country, to people owning apartments in the Upper West Side because they need to go to school at NYU. So you have those contrasts all over the world. And so this digital native idea is a global proposition that's borderless, I would think.
0: I would absolutely agree that the ability to digitally immigrate is borderless, absolutely 100%. The ability for someone, especially from my generation, I have friends in dozens of countries. I was on a call just earlier with a friend from France, and then yesterday with my friend in India, and What is so fascinating is that through the power of the Internet, those countries and many of the people, the young people in those countries have begun to dream in ways that was never possible before the type of technology that we have. And, and, you know, you hear all over the next Elon Musk is probably going to be a young girl from India who has a brilliant science and math potential and and gets the opportunity to travel or to go to a, a school that unlocks that potential in her And I 100% would agree with that, that the access to the technology, to the internet has created a borderless society where the ability to immigrate into the capabilities that the internet offers are 100% there. I would say that probably the distinction in my head is that many of those young people have not had the opportunity to be native digitals. They're certainly digital immigrants, but not native digitals. So in a sense, you could probably say what the millennials experience is probably similar to what they're experiencing. Maybe they were able to move as their, as a teenager or as a college student, able to move into the hub of the city where they were able to gain access to technology. And they've begun to use that. And I think that's incredibly exciting to see.
1: It might be Fair to note that these people you're describing who aren't digital natives, although they're the same age you are, would it be fair to say they're digital dreamers? Absolutely. Which is similar to the digital native. The analog people are digital immigrants. They're not dreaming in digital space, but the dreamers can dream in digital space, even if they don't have the full access. We're coming to the top of the hour. And I do have one other question for you. You have a a wonderful smile and sparkly eyes, and you couldn't be more excited about your future. A lot of the analog natives are concerned because we have disruption. We have democracy disruption. We have the potential for all kinds of authoritarian stuff running head-to-head with the democratic um, stuff. Why are you so excited and how are you able to incorporate all of the disruption that's happening around us in a way that seems to bring optimism rather than pessimism
0: oh wow you know you caught me on a good day james <laughs> um i i have days where i am excited about the potential and optimistic about what our country and our world can achieve. You know, I, ha- I have optimism that my generation is the generation that will help us as a world solve some of these resource problems we have and and, and the political instability that we're experiencing. And then on some days I'm overwhelmed by just the absolute chaos and the, and the absolute inability to have authentic conversations between generations anymore or between different political parties. And so, my sense of optimism comes from having a bigger perspective about what is possible. And like we just talked about with this concept of the internet being borderless, I have so much optimism that my generation is going to be instrumental in being able to develop new technologies and, and new resource management, You know, different ways of thinking that will help us transition into a better world. And yet you see my generation as a whole is one of the most anxious and depressed generations that has ever existed. The tendency for many generations is to blame it on social media. Right. And and all the comparison and all that. And I think that certainly plays a role. But we also carry around a great burden on our shoulders. I have an outside perspective. I have a little bit more of a well rounded perspective, I think. But many of my generation, it's very easy to point fingers and blame our parents, blame our grandparents for greed or for whatever created the circumstances to leave us with the type of world that we have. So, from my perspective, it, it depends on the day. Honestly, it's, it, it, you know, some days I'm incredibly excited about what's possible. And other days I empathize greatly with my generation. You know, I had friends last year during COVID who had bachelor's degrees and were getting turned down for grocery stocking positions because of the companies that weren't hiring. That type of instability is very difficult to have, you know, have gone through two economic recessions to have gone through all of the crises we've seen and the conflict in the past couple of years, It's incredibly different when you are, you know, a teenager during some of your most developmentally challenging years and you're experiencing all of that overwhelming (laughs) conflict and 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 you watch the news and, and it's just scary and frightening. This generation, and I actually I've heard this from Gen Xers I speak with who say the difference is especially you know, business owners who are Gen X, when they look at their staff and they see their millennials and they see their gen zers and they compare them as a whole obviously every person is different but just what i've heard recently from gen xers is they're looking at the two generations they manage and there's such a distinction between the perspective the work ethic they see from millennials versus gen z with gen z being the ones that typically pull up their bootstraps and are willing to do whatever it takes to make the company succeed and I really believe truly with all my heart, that work ethic, that sense of pragmatism that comes with my generation and how we were raised and the environment we grew up in, that drive is what's going to carry our world forward. It's the reason that I have so much confidence in my generation, despite all the times we make fun of Gen Z for being those TikTokers or whatever we want to call them. My generation has an incredible sense of ownership of the type of future we wanna create. And that's what gives me so much optimism for us.
1: Well, Hannah, I really do appreciate you closing on that note. Your Gen Z group, see it's an appreciating currency. And that appreciating currency has great hope and great value as you have so beautifully illustrated in this last hour. So I thank you very much for that. Do you have a closing comment and how will people get in touch with you to say hi?
0: So my closing comment, I want to say on behalf of my whole generation, thank you to anybody who's listening, who's from a different generation. It's very easy to get closed minded and not to realize that we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And it's important to have this type of conversation because we can better understand one another's perspective and it will lead to a better world. I want to say thank you and also apologies in advance if the young person you're talking to does not recognize how important that is. So uh, that would be my closing comment. And I would love to hear from you. If if you're listening, I publish content on pretty much every social media platform. But the easiest way to get in touch with me is just by going to my website. You can go to hannahgwilliams.com. If you type forward slash, and I think I did it as twice, yeah, forward slash twice for this show, then you can specifically go on there. And if if you're a business owner listening or you're uh, a leader and you're managing Gen Z, then if you go on that link, hannahgwilliams.com slash twice, there is a pulse check I developed for this show where you can go on and see how well you're doing your business is doing attracting recruiting and retaining Gen Z just go on there and see how you're doing you know met, see, check up see if there's any areas that you can improve on because I, I don't want you to become irrelevant in the next 15 years what I would encourage you to do of course you're also welcome to email me my, my emails on my website and social links are there too.
1: Well, Hannah, thank you so much for all of that. And that's great information. And thank you for connecting with me and two generations having a wonderful conversation. I enjoyed it very much. I hope you did too.
0: Same back to you. Um, It's awesome to have an authentic dialogue between two generations. We see very little nowadays.
1: Well, maybe we'll see more in the future. And congratulations on your TEDx uh, Asheville talk. Thank you. And there you go, my friends, a conversation with Hannah G. Williams about the dynamics of bridging the generations. And on that note, I'd like to say you've been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVM-LP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, wpvmfm.org. the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in any of Walter's music. If you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com is a good place to start. And if you'd like to know about other things I'm up to, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And I'd like to thank Devine Dial for managing WPVM FM. We really couldn't do this without you, Devine. It's such a pleasure to have you organize all this for us. And if any of you out there listening would like to know more about WPVM FM and community radio, WPVMFM.org is a great place to look. And I'd also like to mention, as I do every week, I host a writing gathering every Saturday morning with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, Noon Eastern Time. If you'd like to tune in, it would be a real pleasure to have you be part of our group, ImaginativeStorm.com, ImaginativeStorm.com. So thank you ever so much for tuning in, and I do hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.
2: I got a feeling that I can't explain Makes me want to dance in the pouring rain And I've never been in love Like this before. I never traveled on a rocket ship, never even been on an acid trip, and I never been in love like this before. I never been invited by a head of state to a barbecue. Climbing up Mount Everest isn't in my fate. But I'm enjoying an incredible view. Friends tease me, and they always say that I often give my heart away. I've done it many times, and I've been keeping score. But I've never been in love like this before. extraordinary way that i feel i never bungeed from a cord, clinging tightly to my life dear lord i found a different thrill and baby i need more cause i've never been in love like this before no i've never been in love before I never, 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 no, 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 and it feels so good, and it feels all right. Should've